Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. question that great strides have been made in eradicating this evil from our culture since the bad old days of slavery and Jim Crow. But alas, the urgent task is not completed, and as a result, a great divide still lingers among too many Americans based on superficial and irrelevant differences of skin color and hair texture. I believe that listening to each other's stories is crucial medicine in healing this great wound in our collective national soul. My guest today is an expert communicator in this regard, helping to build bridges and palliate bitterness across racial divides. The Reverend Dr. Arthur Cribbs Jr. is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, a former television journalist, radio talk show host, and documentarian. He is a graduate of UC Berkeley, obtained his Master's of Divinity from Chicago Theological Seminary in 1986 and his Doctor of Ministry and Ethics from Claremont School of Theology in 2009. Cribbs produced and hosted the television special Stories of the Soul, Life After 9-11, for which he received an Emmy Award. He was nominated for an Emmy for his documentary Changing Faces of AIDS. He is the former executive director of the Interfaith Movement for Human Integrity and has been a longtime ethics instructor for the California Department of Justice, working with police departments to improve law enforcement. Due to his many contributions in serving his community, the city of San Diego proclaimed February 30, 2007, as the Reverend Arthur Cribbs Day. Now Cribbs has written what he calls an autobiographical novel, Holly Watts, From the Promised Land to Purgatory, actually a memoir recounting his life growing up in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, where he witnessed the destruction of an important African-American community under the onslaught of drugs, gang violence, and ruling class indifference. Cribs is currently senior pastor of the Christian Fellowship Congregational Church in San Diego, California. He is also my college roommate and one of my oldest and dearest friends. Arthur, welcome to Humanize. Wesley, it's great to be with you. How are you doing? I'm doing well now that you're on the program here. You began your career as a television journalist. What attracted you to that profession? You know, when I was first invited to go to work in Los Angeles at what was then KHJ-TV, it's now KCAL, I turned down the opportunity. Uh, And it was because of 1965. I remember too well what, uh, what happened in my community as it was portrayed Uh, portrayed 
by uh, by news people, in particular television stations that came into the Watts Willowbrook area, and they they called us monkeys. They they called us all kinds of names that appeared on the air. Excuse me. Excuse me. They called you monkeys on the air. Yes. People of people of color monkeys. Yes. Yes. And this was during what's called the Watts riots, correct? That's that's absolutely correct. We were savages. We were monkeys. We were anything but children of God. And that was publicly um, pronounced. And I made a commitment in my mind. I didn't ever want to work for television. Uh, That's that's ironic, isn't it? (laughs) Well, as we we look back on it, that was uh, I I was offered a job at KHJ by Baxter Ward. And I, uh, Baxter was a news anchor person, and um, he interviewed me in November 1970. And he said, you're in college, stay in school, I'll call you at the end of the school year. And in my mind, I said, sure, right, of course you will. <laughs> I was cynical. But Baxter was very true to his word. And he called me in June of 1971, invited me to go to work on his staff as a news writer, and a researcher. And what was interesting in 1971, Baxter was really fascinated and taken by the assassination of Robert Kennedy in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Grove Hotel, the Coconut Grove Hotel, um, in 1968. Baxter decided to do his own investigation of that uh, assassination as a journalist. And when I went to work for him, he let me join his team. And so I had a chance. I met the woman who had the polka dot dress uh, the night that uh, Robert Kennedy was killed, got to read a lot of uh, testimony and um, different materials that led up to that case. Baxter was successful in reopening that case. He did not believe Sirhan Sirhan acted alone. And he was able to reopen the case on ballistics. It was very narrow, but only on ballistics. But that got him into the door. Uh, unfortunately, from many perspectives, uh, although he was able to reopen the case, it was determined that uh, the evidence as presented and the outcome of that trial was unchanged. And so uh, he presented it, but he didn't get very far. But, but that was... Uh... Journalism. I mean, regardless yeah. of whether his hy- hypothesis was correct or not, it was a journalistic enterprise to try to make sure the truth had come out. That's absolutely right. And I was this young kid, man. I was 21. And uh, he really launched my career into broadcasting. Um, after spending that summer of 1971 with Baxter, um, I decided this is what I want to do. I went from no, I don't want to work in television. In fact, let me just tell you the story about that. The, the person who suggested that I talk to Baxter Ward was a white woman who was a member of my church in Los Angeles. And I wrote it off and she suggested, hey, there's an opening at KHJ, you should look into it. I said, I don't want to do that. Now, a white woman called me a bigot. She said, you're saying no to an opportunity without even exploring it. That's the way bigots think. That's the way bigots act. And you are a bigot. Well, a white woman calling a black man a bigot was a little bit, a little bit hard for me. So I, I, I went down. I talked to Baxter, and it really worked out really well. And I continued in broadcasting, in television, and radio for the rest of my career. You know, you, um, I remember those days 
because yeah. as I mentioned earlier, we've been friends for a long time. Yes. Um, you uh, got on the air in Reno and Seattle and San Francisco, and, and uh, you told me that you benefited from a program established by Gene Autry, the cowboy movie star, um, to help uh, minority uh, journalists uh, succeed. Tell, tell, me, tell that story briefly. Sure. It was uh, 1971. Um, Gene Autry put together um, a minority broadcast training program. And I heard about it. I was in, I was in college. I was in school. And it was held, he had auditions held at uh, what is KTLA KMPC on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. And I went down, my, I took my college girlfriend, uh, Rachel, uh, Rachel Isaiah, we went together. And when we, when we got to, um, I think it was Benton Street, something like that, right around the corner from KTLA, there was a line of people that turned, it may be burdened, but they went from uh, around the corner onto sunset into the parking lot and into the building where they were uh, doing interviews. And so we stood in that line and finally my turn came up to, to go inside. And that's where I met Tad Dunbar, who was the news director at KOLO TV in Reno. He came down along with other uh, news directors and I went in, you know, standing in that line. It was my turn to go in. And he asked me some questions. I answered his questions. And I came out and Shelly said, why were you in there so long? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, everybody else was going in and coming out. You went in and stayed. I said, really? I, I, I don't know. They had me ask me some questions. <laughs> you know? And that was the beginning of my career. Uh, Gene Autry put together that broadcast training program and opportunities. In my heart of hearts, Wes, I wanted to do radio and I wanted to do it in San Francisco. San Francisco, since I was nine years old, was my single objective. I wanted to be in San Francisco. I ended up in Reno and Tad Dunbar hired me, uh, brought me on his staff. And that was the beginning of not radio, but my television career. Well, you were a television uh, news broadcaster and uh, street reporter in Reno and yes. Seattle and ta-da, in San Francisco. Uh, did yes. you find that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, KGO and then KPIX? Uh, KPIX later, I, I was news, I became news director at what was then KDIA, Boss of the Bay, uh, Black <laughs> Radio Station in Oakland, which was a great station, wonderful station. And, um, they hired me as their news and public affairs director. So you you uh, did this for many years before, as well about to get as we are about to get into. You left to uh, become uh, a church person, um, but uh, did you find that um, being an African American journalist, uh, being African American, did that help you in your career, or did that hinder you in your career, or was it irrelevant? You know, it, it was probably very irrelevant. Um, when I was 13 years old, I had three events that put me on a track that I'm still on today. I preached my first sermon in my father's church. My father was a Baptist pastor. And I remember I said, Dad, I feel I've been called to preach. And he says, really, who called you, God or your mother? <laughs> <laughs> my dad was wonderful. But uh, I preached my first sermon in my father's church at 13 
A few weeks later, my best friend from kindergarten was on vacation in Chicago and was killed. He was hit by a truck. And the third thing that happened, uh, I followed my older sister's footsteps into journalism at our junior high school newspaper. And I wrote my first newspaper story, 13 years old. My first sermon, lost my best friend since kindergarten and wrote my first newspaper story. And my life followed that track. I'm a pastor today. And every now and then I get to show up on radio and television and get to write something. Yeah, there so you go. God, God also has a sense of humor, I think. <laughs> He'd better. <laughs> In your book, Hollywatts, From the Promised Land to Purgatory, you describe being healed as a boy by the power of prayer. Tell us about that. And, and did that also help influence you toward the ministry? I was about seven years old. I, I uh, suffered from asthma. I may have been a little bit older. I may have been nine. But uh, I, was, I was a child, and, and I'll never forget it. My mother and father were away. My grandmother uh, was home with my two sisters and me, and I had a severe asthma attack. I, I'd had asthma, uh, I guess, since I was a baby. Um, but that night, it was so severe, Wes, I lost coloration. Everything went from real color, live color, to gray. My breathing was very labored. And my grandmother was doing everything she knew to do. And my asthma attack was severe. Um, she really thought she was going to lose me. She called a prayer line and put the phone to my ear. And there was a woman on the other line and she was praying for me. And as she prayed for me with the phone to my ear, color came back. My breathing was normalized. I've not had an asthma attack since. My father came home, took me to, um, to the hospital. Uh, we, I grew up in an area called Willowbrook in the George Washington Carver Manor. Willowbrook is between Watts in Los Angeles and Compton. I was about right in the middle of the city of Los Angeles, city of Compton in Willowbrook. My father came home in the middle of the night, carried me into the car, drove me to the hospital in Torrance. And when we got to the hospital, my breathing was normal. There was nothing in my lungs. There was no sign of asthma. And I've not had an asthma attack since. Well, that's that that would be a powerful experience. So did that help uh, push you towards a life of uh, faith and uh, serving God? I, I like to believe I've always served God and I've always been a person of faith. My father's a Baptist pastor, <laughs> had been a deacon. Um, my grandmother was president of the pastor's aid. The church that I grew up in was built by my grandfather. Uh, and it was two blocks from our home. We could see the church from our front window. And, and I was in a community of people of faith, Muslims, Catholics, Protestants. In my own house, um, my God brothers came and lived with us. One was a Muslim, the other was Buddhist. They came <laughs> into our Baptist house. My sisters both married men who were Catholic. Um, and so we had quite a collection of religious presence in our home uh, there in the Watts Willowbrook area. So. Faith has always been uh, a part of my DNA, if you would. 
And my, you know, my uh, father, my father was so open. He never uh, said to my brother who was Buddhist, be a Baptist. Or my brother, my brother, my God brother who was Muslim, be a Baptist, be a Christian. I never heard anything like that. It was a full acceptance of who they were with their own integrity in our home. And uh, it was a joy. And as I said, my two sisters both married men who were Catholic. And it was that was our house. That's how we grew up. Human exceptionalism is about the unique dignity of human beings and also our obligations to each other and to the world and so forth. And I think one of the most important uh, aspects of our lives is trying to seek truth with a capital T, wherever that might lead us. And uh, part of part of that is allowing people the space, as you were just describing, to find that path that suits them and not try to force others to think as we do. I've been very fortunate in so many ways. One, having you as, as my roommate in college. I mean, here we are today, these many years later, here we are as brothers and, and yep. you know, both uh, interested in media and broadcasting. But one of the things, Wes, that uh, really moved me, I've been to almost 50 countries now, and I was in, uh, in Ghana, West Africa, years ago, my first trip to, to the continent. I was in communities where uh, indigenous religions were practiced, um, European religions were practiced, and um, people in these these villages, close knit communities, had religious diversity without conflict and with respect. And to witness that. Uh, on the continent of Africa, in Ghana, uh, really stirred my soul. You know, I understood that because I grew up with that. Yeah. But we think about so many places in the world, even today, where there is conflict based on religion, yeah. conflict based on our separate understandings of, of divinity, of God. And we take the creation that God has shared with us and and we do just horrible things to each other uh in so many ways it was wonderful for me and it's the point i'm making um i consider ghana my ancestral homeland because where my spirit resonates and 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 is at home and where diversity is honored and celebrated and it means the wholeness of god's creating of God's imagination leads us to a way to honor God, to worship God, to be the people of God through the diversity that that we have. And it, it, it moves me deeply. I, I wish we in the United States could demonstrate an emphatic love for one another with our diversity, yes. without a sense of superiority. You know, I hate the term, the greatest country in the world. When we talk about the United States, it's one of almost 200 countries, 197 or so countries in the world. I, I think there's some orientation that we breathe and live every day in a country that puts more resources into weaponry than it does in the, the well-being of people who live here. We have an attitude toward immigrants. There's no way this country could be what it is today if it had not been from pe for people who came from many places and made their way to these shores 
and establish themselves a new home. You realize we massacred as a nation more than 60 million indigenous people who had lived on these lands for thousands of years. Wipe them out, wipe them out. College University of London did a study on the annihilation of indigenous peoples here on this land that we now call the United States. There's so much that we take for granted. Our history is polluted with actions that never should have occurred. Slavery, taking people from the continent of Africa and forcing them to come and to work to build a nation without compensation. Taking people who were here and wiping them out to claim this land. Creating false borders. I now live within five miles of the Mexico-United States border. And why is that border there? And not only is it there, it's militarized. It has been refortified. And the indigenous peoples who have lived on these lands are made aliens and illegal and immigrants in their own homeland. That I find that most disturbing. And I don't hear enough um, significant voices saying that's not right. How do we make indigenous people aliens in their own homeland? And yet we have constructed that. And I'm not sure if we even think about it as citizens of the United States, what it means to take indigenous people and make them aliens in their own homeland where they have resided for thousands of years, not hundreds of years, not dozens of years, but for thousands of years. And it goes without complaint. And not only do we fortify, we militarize the border. That's what we're living with. And that's where we are. Let's talk more about Holly Watts, your book. Um, it's labeled an autobiographical novel, but it's more of a memoir because I know some of these stories yes. with names changed to protect the innocent. Why did you <laughs> write it? You know, that's, that's a wonderful question. It, it just came to me. Um, and I, I like to think I just sort of followed the spirit. Uh, one, I wanted to honor my mother and my father. I wanted to honor my godparents who lived across the street from me. I wanted to tell the story of a people who migrated from the southern states of the United States to a western state to a community called Hollywoods. And that was a term that you helped me with uh, when we were in college. Uh, and I give you credit for that in the book, uh, of course. You know, as we were introducing ourselves, you know, I think you said, where are you from? I said, Hollywoods. And then when we started writing the book, you said, you know, you need to put that right up front. Uh, but it's a story about a community of people who, after World War II, made their way to California, the land of sunshine and promise. And the community in which I grew up was actually developed by an African-American woman, uh, Mrs. Grant who also hired an African-American architect and they constructed a community of George Washington Carver Manor residing between the city of Compton and the city of Los Angeles. She had a vision, Mrs. Grant had a vision, Belma Grant, that when black men returned from the war 
and they landed in Long Beach or San Pedro, Los Angeles, they're going to feel the warmth of the sun and they're going to make a decision to stay in this, in this, in this city of Los Angeles. And she was right. And she built these homes for returning African-American GIs after World War II. And fortunately, my father was one of those men. Yeah, that that, I, that was it. very interesting. I was not aware, and I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, that um, that South Central part portion of the city was uh, created in that way until I read your book. I, I was that was never mentioned uh, in any um, history I ever heard of the city. So well, it was farmland. It was farmland. There were ranches, and even today, um, there's a group of the Black Cowboys. Well, they were three or four blocks south of my home uh, in, in Willowbrook. And they're still there today, these cowboys. Um, it was very rural, open space. And she urbanized it with this development. And of course now, uh, right across the street from me, from me when I was growing up was a housing project called Palm Lane. I used to hear the platters. You remember the platters? The, yes, uh, the, the, the musical. They were our neighbors yeah. living in public housing and they would be rehearsing, and we had the pleasure of hearing their music. <laughs> uh, the only other experience like that, I'm, I'm diverting a little bit here, but in 1969, um, when you and I were roommates, I was going to work in Hollywood uh, for an auto leasing company. And it was a small house right off Sunset Boulevard behind a recording studio where the fifth dimension were recording and rehearsing. And boy, many of those, those afternoons, we got to hear the fifth dimension in the studio in front of the office to, uh, uh, where, where I was working for this uh, car leasing company. But it's just been wonderful to be surrounded by music. That's my point. Yeah, and uh, your, your, cousin, your cousin is? Uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Yeah. Uh, Smokey yeah. Robinson's your cousin, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you Ronnie, have... White. Ronnie, Ronnie White is my cousin. Smokey uh, and Ronnie were best friends and they formed the Miracles. I see. And Ronnie's, Ronnie's brother, let me just say this for the record. Ronnie's brother, Michael, discovered Stevie Wonder. Now, <laughs> if you read anything about it, it will say Ronnie White without mentioning Michael. Ronnie had direct contact to uh, Tamla Records and now Motown uh, through Ber Barry Gordy. And it was Ronnie's brother, Michael, who actually introduced Barry Gordy to Stevie Wonder when Stevie was a little boy, I mean, seven, eight years old. He was just a child. And Michael, Ronnie gets the credit. If you look it up, Ronnie White's name is mentioned, but it was his brother, Michael. That's just for the record. Well, the record <laughs> is now straight. Uh, you, start, <laughs> you, you start the book uh, with your parents moving from Tennessee to Los Angeles. And I, I, this really touched me. You said they, because they were judged by the color of their skin rather than the content of their character in the South. I knew both your parents, wonderful people. Um, your father said, uh, just as uh, that developer suggested, when he hit Los Angeles, he wasn't going anywhere. And he told your mother, if you want to stay married to me, you got to come out here. That's right. That's right. My parents are from Memphis. And uh, my mother was, was in Memphis waiting for her husband to return from the war. My father was nearly killed in the Philippines during World War II, and he survived. 
Lord knows he survived. The doctors gave up on him. A, a white chaplain by the name of Joseph Howard, Joe Howard, stayed with my father along with Filipina nurses. The doctors didn't feel there was anything else they could do for him. And through the prayers of Chaplain Howard, the only white man who as a child, when I was growing up, whoever came and stayed in our home was Chaplain Joe Howard. And one time he came with his son, they lived in Texas, and he and his son slept in our home as when I was a child. But um, my father survived that, that event uh, in the Philippines. And um, he called my mother from uh, when he landed in, in Los Angeles. Uh, he called and said, she was in Memphis, Hattie, if we're gonna stay married, we're gonna be married, stay married here in Los Angeles. I'm not moving back to Memphis. <laughs> And she hit the train and, and uh, there we are. And now you're here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you write that your father called himself a race man and was a follower of the teachings of Marcus Garvey. Who was Garvey and what were his teachings? Marcus Garvey was a, a racial activist in the United States. He, his origins are in Jamaica. And he created a movement, really a back to Africa movement. And he was organizing uh, to return uh, black people in the United States to the continent of Africa. He had a philosophy uh, of racial pride, of Africanicity, and he was pretty much um, a proclaimer of that pride. And he had a, a back to Africa movement that he wanted to uh, export uh, African-Americans back to the continent to tie tie us together. Uh, and he was very sincere about that. I recently met his son, or it was his, one of his sons, uh, um, Marcus, one of Marcus Garvey's sons in Washington, D.C. His philosophy is still very much alive today. Garvey, of course, passed uh, years ago. He was very flamboyant. Um, he was in parades. He was a preacher. He was an advocate of racial pride of the integrity of Africanicity, and he wanted the Back to Africa movement to be realized, um, to use the skill sets and the abilities of African-Americans and employ them on the continent of Africa. But what I got from your book is that your father uh, saw that as a means to, uh, for African-Americans to employ it here as well. Independence, uh, a lot of uh, effort and um, productivity and so forth. My, my father was what, what some people call a race man. He had great pride in being a black man in the United States. He served in the United States military in the United States Navy in World War II. My father was very, very sincere about being an American citizen. My father really believed in the philosophy and political perspective of Marcus Garvey. Um, he, my dad called himself a race man. Uh, because he really was interested in the origins of African-Americans and our transition from the continent of Africa to the United States. And Marcus Garvey was about the back to Africa movement. That really fascinated my father. My, my father used to always say that we were uh, Ethiopians, right? And if you saw my father's coloration, that made sense to me um, because he was 
he, he looked like an Ethiopian to me, but there's nothing that we've done to verify that. He always encouraged us to go to Ethiopia. He always wanted us to go to Ethiopia. Well, I've never made it to Ethiopia, but I've been to almost 50 uh, countries uh, in the world and been to Africa, to the continent of Africa, at least three, maybe four times now. I self-identify as Ghanaian. Um, and it's, it was very interesting when I was in a head-on collision in, in Nigeria. And the next day, God blessed us to survive that. It was on the highway. They call it Blood Alley. But we survived it. Next day, went to, uh, went to Ghana. And something happened inside of me, man. And maybe it was because of the accident the night before. But when we arrived in Ghana, I had a personal experience I've never had at all anywhere. I was at home. My my inner being was at home. And I didn't expect it, but I was adopted into a family in Ghana. And I've, I've since bought land in Ghana. It, it is my homeland. And inshallah, it will be a residence for my children, my grandchildren. Uh, they have a home. That, uh, that they can claim and go to. Well, now that's interesting. I'm sorry for interrupting. That's interesting. That's kind of following the Marcus Garvey prescription. It is. And that's, the, it, it, it was planted in me by my father and my father's uh, just fascination with Marcus Garvey. To my knowledge, my father never made it to the continent of Africa, even though he served overseas in the United States Navy. He never got to the continent of Africa. And I grew up under my father's tutelage, influence, always believing we were African people. But he also um, believed in the independence and power and uh, productivity of African-American people and, and here in the United States. Marcus Garvey uh, had that as a part of his philosophy, but he also recognized the cruelty and the difficulties that African people, African-Americans face in this country. I grew up in a community that was designed, as I said, by Velma Grant, um, who was a realtor in Los Angeles. She saw the promise of people, soldiers, military people returning to the United States, landing in Los Angeles, and the warmth of the sun <laughs> yes. would keep them here. And she developed our community. And, uh, and the book is about that promised land, a self-sufficient African-American community. And, you know, at that time wasn't the heart of Los Angeles, but in Los Angeles. And then your subtitle is quite tragic. Um, From the promised land, which you've just described, to purgatory, uh, what, what, why did you use that term? And there is a part in your book where you say it's not hell, <laughs> but it's but it's purgatory. What is the what is the concept that you're conveying there? Well, let's look back historically. I grew up in a community that was peaceful, prosperous. Men and women who transported from mostly from the south to Southern California. There came a time when our community became purgatory and the targets were children who were given guns and drugs as if they were toys and candy. 
This literally happened, Wes. And they were militarized, two groups. I went to Centennial High School. Our colors were red and white. Our rival high school was Compton High School. Their colors were blue and white. Fast forward, following the assassination of Dr. King in 1968, our community was still a peaceful place. But by 1970, it was a war zone. And it was children, elementary age children, who were weaponized with handguns and bullets as if they were toys. And then they became militarized by organizations that we now call the Crips and the Bloods. Yeah. The Bloods were red and white, that was their color. The Crips were blue and white, that was their color. The color of our high school was red and white. The color of our rival high school, Compton, was blue and white. So all of a sudden you have this militarized operation. Our community was ground zero for that. And we can fast forward to where we are today. Crips and Bloods are organized all over the country. And I got to tell you, man, it, it was hard to really organize a baseball game of kids, you know, to have enough children to or, or organize sports, just playground stuff. I'm not talking about the leagues. Those leagues were well established, but just to organize a game of baseball or a game of basketball or a game of football just among the kids. All of a sudden, you have this militarized organization focused on children in the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. King in 1968. Now, I don't have any empirical evidence, and I'm not an attorney, I'm not in a court of law, but I'm looking at the record, I'm looking at the history, where my community, the street where I live, the streets that I walk, the streets of my neighbors went from this peaceful, tranquil, wonderful community to a war zone where people were afraid of the children in the other bedroom in their house. How did that happen? How did that get replicated across the country with precision, guns, weapons put on and put into trains and those trains were parked on tracks on train tracks in our community happened in Chicago the same way it happened in other cities across the country carloads of weapons on the tracks that made their way from those train cars to communities in the hands of children that's the United States of America that's the purgatory where people were afraid in their own homes because they had armed children in the house with them. Many of those children didn't see adulthood. Yeah. I remember, you know, we did a lot of funerals. My father was a pastor. We would do funerals. The graveyard couldn't do, couldn't take any more bodies. They were filled up in my community. And, no you, and you see that you see that carnage in places continuing, like in Chicago. Oh yes, uh, where where yeah, there's across the world. And and it's uh, it, it's it seems to me that um, let's this talk on Chicago. You lived there, of course, for a while, but it seems to me that 
the carnage in the African-American community receives no attention from the media and even from people who are civil rights leaders today. What do you think that's about? I, I think it's a, a painful reality. You know, when you're in the midst of a, of a storm of war and death, um, you can be traumatized. You're still trying to figure out how did, how did it happen? Not the why did it happen, but how did it happen? Uh, I believe uninformed, I'm, I'm not saying this as a journalist, I'm just saying this as an observer who lived through that era. I think the high price of the civil rights movement cost the lives of our children, cost the lives of our future. Uh, the civil rights movement elevated the lives of all people in this country. Yeah, I agree with that. And we were assaulted just like the tens of millions of indigenous people were wiped out. That's what happened to African people, black people in the United States. You know, if people who are not black listening to this are maybe reacting pretty negatively to what you just said, um, the sense that many of us have, and honestly, the sense I have, is that there's been tremendous progress in large part because of Dr. Martin Luther King, but the, the ideal at least of being judged by the content of your character rather than the color of your skin has prevailed. But you're saying that despite at least some of that, that you think that because it prevailed that, that uh, these communities are in, in this uh, terrible trouble? Oh, absolutely. And, 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 you know, I'm talking about the weaponization, the weaponizing uh, of the children but it also happened in the education system. I had a great education. I was competitive academically with anybody anywhere. I was on the debate team. We beat Beverly Hills High School in debate, right? I did that on our debate team, right? And we consistently were competitive academically, okay? So our community, and, and our community was not unique. This was across the country. Uh, the, the integrity, the ambition, the pride of African people in the United States produce quality human beings. That was assaulted, that was attacked, and it has not been resolved today, right? Um, even our churches, our religious centers have been diluted. The civil rights movement was a religious movement yeah. headed up by people in the church, you know? I spent a lot of time with Stokely Carmichael. <laughs> I was just thinking about him this morning, man. Beautiful cat, Kwame Ture. Beautiful man. Uh, he, he, he didn't know what to make of me, right? <laughs> we met in Seattle. We met in San Francisco. He came to our church in Oakland. We met again in Mississippi. Met again in Chicago. <laughs> and I don't know if he was chasing me or if I was chasing him. Beautiful brother. Beautiful brother. He touched my heart, Kwame Ture, touched my heart because he wanted us to understand our connection to the continent of Africa, although we have been separated over these, over these many years. Beautiful man. I never heard him say uh, a negative thing about people 
he had a lot to say about conditions and conspiracies and plots to devalue black life in the United States. Kwame Ture. There's much. I can I can tell you in the white community, Stokely Carmichael does not have that kind of uh, sterling reputation that he has with you. Because he told the truth. When you put the truth together with the history, um, you know, we elevate whiteness in the United States. We devalue blackness in the United States. And he spoke truth to that reality. And it wasn't out of design by black folk that white people are demonic or, or, or whatever. It was the evidence of activity that put black life in jeopardy that Kwame Ture spoke directly to that point. And but I know I, that in, in your work, you reject the idea of, you know, the whiteness um, conveys uh, any kind of uh, character. I mean, you look at people as individuals, you've, and you've always cut across racial divides. Well, yes. I, I mean, I, I was president of the National Conference of Christians and Jews when I was in high school, right? I mean, and, and in my own home, uh, my parents were very proud black people and our home was open to, to anyone, right? We had Haitians, we had Africans, we had Joe Howard who came you into our me. home. We had <laughs> Wesley Smith coming into yes. our home. I mean, our home was never a place that was off limits to anyone. But this is what has, has characterized your work and why I, I've been so proud of you over these years is that you have you reject personally those kinds of divisions. Well, you know, we're all children of God, right? We did not design our texture of hair, our complexion, our colorization, uh, the artificial uh, nationality that we impose on each other. We didn't do that. Um, I've served as a pastor. Um, I just completed a pastorate in Virginia, a church that was founded in 1955 as an intentional integrated church of black and white folk in 1955 in Virginia. Yeah, that's back when Northern Virginia isn't like this now, but back in 55, Northern Virginia was hotbed of uh, quasi-Confederate thinking. Well, the capital of Confederacy is in Virginia, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> so that, um, that church, Little River, United Church of Christ in Annandale took on racism in Northern Virginia in 1955 when, when racism and segregation were protected by law. And they formed this intentional interracial church. And I was very blessed to be called to be their pastor um, in, in a period of transition uh, toward uh, a new pastor which gave me a much broader uh, scope and respect for people in Virginia and those who fought the good fight, you know, who opened the doors. I mean, you and I lived blocks from each other uh, there in, in Virginia. And there was a time when that couldn't be. The laws of segregation said, no, no, separation of races based on race alone, not income ability or social status. Um, so Virginia has come a long ways. One of the best experiences of my life 
was living in your neighborhood in Virginia, where, you know, it was it was excellent. It was wonderful. It was a joy. And I'm pleased that the state, the city where we lived, progressed so much that it isn't even a matter of where you can and cannot live. Now, financially, that's another thing. But racially, it's open to everyone. Which was the point, which was the point I kind of made at the top of this episode, you know, that um, there has been tremendous improvement and there has been tremendous effort. And I think that needs to be honored, as you just did, as well as the continuing problems. Sure. We're we're constantly making making progress. But it's it's a stubbornness. Um, We cannot dismiss the reality of racism. I mean, as I said, I'm I'm four miles from the Mexico border. An artificial distinction and separation that has been constructed, militarized and reinforced to keep the indigenous people from living freely and moving freely on their own homeland where they and their ancestors have resided for tens of thousands of years. But today, right in their, in the midst of their land, their home, they have been made aliens, <laughs> immigrants. It's preposterous, but we live with it. And the condoning of such artificial assignments and block people who, and these are, these are nomadic people. They're not stationary. They're nomadic. They've been nomadic for thousands of years. And suddenly someone had a grand idea, stop the movement, divide the people, claim the land. It's not only fortified, it's codified. And the people who have been here 10 miles from where I am right now, who have been here for thousands of years, are made into aliens in their homeland. Who back, does that? Back in back in uh, your book, Hollywood, um, I was interested that you were very critical of the changes in black music that occurred during the oh. time period of your book. Um, describe what happened, because you, you talk about the beautiful, and we all remember <laughs> of a certain age, that music, and then it, it became vulgarized, as you put it. Um, t- talk about that and why you think that's an important point. Well, as we said earlier, right, my family's tied to Motown by by relationships, right? Um, music is such a critical part of who we are as human beings. There's singing in the civil rights movement as a source of uplift and empowerment. There's singing as a way of telling the story of a people. Music got weaponized as a part, in my opinion, I'm going to say this without saying emphatically this is true, but my observation is that the power of music that inspired people, that helped people go on. And if you look at the civil rights movement, if you study that movement, music fuels the spirit of the people. Then there came a time when music was vulgarized 
where music would inspire you to do violence. The same methodology that was used to inspire you to go forward, to do good, to unite, was weaponized. And all of a sudden, you know, the term gangster rap, right? Well, what is that? What's a gangster? And what is rap, right? I mean, rapping used to inspire you to do good, inspired you to be powerful, inspired you to, to make change in history. And now it's weaponized so that you're saying bad things about your mama, you're saying bad things about women, you're saying bad things about other people, and you're using the most vulgar language. And language is powerful. It's not, it's not benign. The music was weaponized to slow the progress of a people who use music to be inspired. And there's a direct correlation, Wesley, between the, the, the language of music and the increase in violence and the increase in death and the increase in self-degradation. There's a direct correlation. I, I agree with that, but are, are you holding any particular people responsible or is it just the way I look at it? It's a big time show business making a lot of money off it. Well, you can make money and, and achieve the, the intent. If you, if you want to stop a people, you go after their children. You go to the root so that you can influence the future. I believe that music was weaponized. By who though? black people and use the rhythms of black folk against black children. I believe it, but who? I can see the evidence of it. Who do you think did that? People who hate black people, people who hate progress, people who did not want the America that is promised in literature and rhetoric to be realized, to be inclusive. You know, the name of this country is United States of America. United means differences coming together. It's not sameness. It's a, uh, an amalgam of a variety of peoples to create united. Well, that's what e pluribus unum is. It, right? Out of many, one, right? And... We as a nation have yet to live up to that with full integrity. We, I think we have in our hearts the ability to do better, but we have in our souls the propensity to create a fictionalized reality and call it real. And when it comes to race, the progress of the civil rights movement was so emphatic, so effective, that someone of a demonic intent used the music that inspired to change the hearts and minds of the children. And that music was directed at kids. Gangster rap was directed at children, not people our age. It was direct, it's cutting off the future with self-hatred and self-degradation and ways in which People use uh, a very powerful tool to stop the progress and to hmm, poison the future. And you can also see how it can be used to promote tremendous patriotism. Have you seen uh, Hamilton? 
Oh, it was the play. Yes. 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 Well, they, they, no, they didn't use gangster rap. They no, used they, a form. Uh, but see, with gangster rap, you got to look at the lyrics. Why is it called gangster rap? It's because it's so violent. It's it's the it's the 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 the, the lyrics of the music. Now you know if they if they came out with the rhythm of gangster rap and elevated the souls of people, the spirit of people, elevated us to want to do better and to do more, it would have been very effective. Just as it did exactly what it was intended to do. And that was to poison the hearts and minds of the children to cut off the future. Yeah, I think, Hamil- I, think, I think Hamilton, the um, the poetic um, libretto, if you will, yeah. shows that's true. Yeah. Because uh, oh, yeah. I happened to see it in London, and I was explaining to the British audience people next to me who these people were. They knew who George Washington was, but they didn't know some of the others. And I just thought it was one of the most fabulous theater experiences oh, yeah. of my life. Oh, yeah. And, uh, my, so my, I, my, kids, my kids saw Hamilton. I saw Hamilton. And we loved it. We yeah. enjoyed it. Right. And, of course, some of us still claim Hamilton as a brother. You understand that, right? Yes, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, both of us can, right? (laughs) So, you know, you there's one story. We're running out of time, time, um, and I I think it's important that your perspective be heard because we need to listen to each other, even if we disagree with each other. Um, And you describe an event uh, in your godfather's life, Daddy Thomas, um, who I met. And and brought me. He brought me into. I remember it very well. How gracious he was when I I brought. He brought me into the our his home when we had meal there, and he and he once hated white people, but was healed of that negativity in an unexpected encounter. Uh, ex, just describe that a little bit because I think it's an important uh, anecdote about how we can uh, get past this garbage that we're dealing with. Uh, Daddy Thomas and Mother Thomas. Uh, uh, Willie and Fanny Thomas were our neighbors. They lived across the street from us. They were also from Memphis, Tennessee, like my parents were. But they met. And, and several neighbors on, on our street were from Memphis, but they didn't know each other in Memphis. They met on the street where we lived, right? And my godparents who lived across the street from us, you met, you were in their home. My godfather uh, worked in a steel mill in Los Angeles. And one night, um, he, he, he kept a pistol. Um, he was a church going man. He was a deacon, calling Deacon Thomas. But he hated white people because of his experiences that drove him out of the South, out of Tennessee, expecting to find something better in Southern California. And what he found was what he left in Tennessee. So he had this attitude. Then one night, as he was coming home from work late at night, rainy night in Southern California. His car broke down, his car stopped, and it was a white man in a truck who came to his aid in that rain. Now that could have been a pedestrian experience, but it was an emphatic, transformative experience for my godfather. A white man in the middle of the night in pouring down rain stopped and helped him a black man 
who was in distress on the side of the road. That experience, that single act changed my Godfather. It surprised him, it converted him, it solidified his membership into the Christian faith. One white man on a rainy night in Southern California, the goodness, the goodness of one man converted my Godfather. See, that's the cure, isn't it? To, to all of the stuff that we've been talking about and other issues that, that we can't, uh, reaching out to each other in love. And that is a human obligation to reach out to each other in love. Just like that chaplain to, did your father. Yeah, we, we don't have to agree politically. We've had different experiences. We have different perspectives, you know, but we can respect each other. We can love each other. A chaplain Joe Howard, man, when the doctors gave up, he was he was the God man, right? <laughs> For my dad, literally, uh, and the and the Filipino nurses. And that friendship was so solid between Chaplain Howard. We still called him Chaplain Howard, although he was out of the military. And my dad. I mean, they were they were like that. They were like you and I, man. They were so close, nothing could separate them. And, and that that really is is the crucial issue. I hope people will read your book because it, it um, particularly I think people who have not um, had deep experience in an African-American community and the different, the different experiences that black people often have versus people who aren't black. And, and I think it's, 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 it's a way to attain, even in issues with which there might be disagreement, it's a way to attain mutual understanding and respect. I want I like to talk to, about. I like to, I like to read one one poem. Oh, I'm a, sorry, I was going to get to that, <laughs> but go ahead, read your poem. Holly Watts. I'm I'm being kind of gauche here, but yes. that's Holly Watts from the Promised Land of Purgatory. Uh, it's a narrative, but each chapter begins with a poem. Correct. And this this poem is uh, a mother's tears. Okay. Moaning, groaning, no articulation, just pain, tears crawling cheek to chin, huge and hot like summer rain, silent, screams, nobody listens, pleading, cruel voices at a distance, police, monsters, victims, Innocent, her only child is dead. Nobody cares. In the pit of her soul, empty, like Easter's tomb, gaping hole, nothing can fill the mother's tears. Wow, wow. That that's a, that's a, that's very moving, and and it's true. Nothing can cure a mother's tears when her child has been taken from her like that. I want to. Um, this could be a good place to end, but you do something that I think is important. So I'm going to not go along with the 
usual uh, approach that I might take, which would end on that poem because it's so powerful. But I want to—I want you to talk just a bit about your work uh, with police officers and what you've learned about police officers uh, in that work and how they've touched you and hopefully how you've touched them. Well, thank you. Uh, it was a surprise to me. I, I spent 21 years as the ethics instructor for the California Department of Justice uh, Police Officers Training Program. So I had every law enforcement uh, agency in the state of California, and um, it's required a required course for law enforcement executives. I was only at the executive level. So I had every police chief, every sheriff, every commander, um, the executive level of law enforcement in the state of California for 21 years. It was, I was the student in the room. Uh, every, uh, every class, I was the student in the room. I'm in the front as the ethics instructor, but Wes, I was the student in the room. Um, it was such a collage of different thought, different experiences. I could not predict walking into a room how the day would go. Most of the time, the day went fairly well. But there were times when it went really bad, really bad. And it only took one or two people in the class to turn it south, if you would, to turn it sideways. I did that 21 years. Um, I learned more than I was able to input um, import to them as, as an instructor. We engaged in deep conversation about contemporary issues. What is law enforcement? What does that really mean? And what is the relationship uh, between officers in the streets and other people's communities and the people in those communities? What are the opportunities for ethical conduct and behavior, the model of ethical practice and presence with the executives. This is at the executive level. What are the chiefs expecting of their officers? What are the sheriffs expecting of their officers? What are the marshals expecting of their officers? How are we as executives in the state of California and law enforcement embodying the highest quality of humanity with an ethical approach to the work that the citizens of this state expect of us. Every time I walked into a classroom, I would see new faces of the highest echelon of law enforcement in the state of California. And I didn't know walking in early in the morning who I would be at the end of the day. Some days it was glorious and wonderful. And I came out the winner. That is, I got more from them than I could input <laughs> as the instructor. And a lot of times uh, I found myself wondering, is there any hope for individuals in the highly respected echelon of a law enforcement executive? They're human beings. 
I did it 21 years. I'm so grateful to have had that experience. And I would say to anyone, if you have an opportunity to have a private conversation with a law enforcement officer on the street or a law enforcement executive, don't miss the opportunity to engage. I didn't find um, people who were neutral in the room. Um, they were realistic. They knew their obligations as executives. They knew the world in which they resided and worked. And they had expectations of those who were under their command. It was, it was, a, it was a challenging and glorious honor to have served the law enforcement executives in the state of California for 21 years. Since the George Floyd murder, um, it's, it, there seems to be a terrible um, division among many people and police officers. Police officers have been assassinated uh, in the wake of that. Um, there have been further claims of uh, police brutality and so forth. Do you, do you see um, a means by which the, that current bitterness can be uh, ameliorated? Or do you think at this point the communication just isn't there to allow it at this point in time? The communication opportunity is always there. We may start at a different point. We may start from different perspectives, but the opportunity to communicate is always there. That door never shuts. It never shuts. I, I think um, we need, and, and even as a pastor, uh, I've invited law enforcement to come into our church. You know, um, they didn't always come, but the, the invitation was always extended uh, to have dialogue. I have law enforcement people in my congregation, right? Faithful members of our church. Um, this country cannot survive with any civility without law enforcement. We won't, we won't last as a nation. Um, so it's really important to not see law enforcement as the enemy or the other, but to see that they are a part of the fabric of our communities. They come from our families, some of our neighbors. We have to see them as valuable, necessary resources in our communities, in our society. You take away law enforcement, man. If you take away law enforcement, you should book yourself a flight out of here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, toward the end of your book, you describe purgatory and not hell, as I mentioned before, and end with Martin Luther King's exclamation that you as a people will get to the promised land. What would that look like to you? The promised land? Yes. Wow. Great question, Wes. The promised land is a place of hope. I'm just use the language, a place of promise. It means taking our capacity, our potential, and utilizing that desire to do better. Promised land is where all life is respected. There is no lesser life. There is no lesser person. We are 
as Dr. King would say, we're not judged by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. That means we see the essence, the essential. And finally, we see the connectivity. You know, if it had not been for those who came before us, we would not be. If it had not been for those who surround us, we cannot do. There are ways in which we have to see God's intentionality in the collectivity of humanity that we get to have the privilege of experiencing. Every, every person is to be honored, not defined, honored. And I think, I think we can get there, but we have to do it intentionally and not by accident. And we have to listen to each other and be open uh, to having our own perspectives challenged and, and love each other. Well, and, our, and, to uh, accept our, and accept our diversity. Yes. Accept our diversity. God intentionally made us a diverse species. Love us. Expect difference among us and from us. Well, thank you for being with us, Art. Um, I, I deeply appreciate it. I value our friendship tremendously. And uh, I hope to uh, talk to you again soon. Thanks, Wes. It's an honor to be with you, brother. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.